Hey legends, my name is Mo and welcome to the Can't Can World podcast. I'm a Royal Marine who is dedicated to optimizing human performance and want to bring you exposure to the fantastic people supporting the same aim. In this episode, I speak to a woman who has dedicated her life to supporting and treating people with addictions from drugs and alcohol. And we discuss her recent personal experience with dealing with cancer whilst continuing to make people better tomorrow than today. This episode has been sponsored by Discrete Chaos. Head over to their Instagram at Discrete Chaos and use the promotion code CANTCANWILL21 to receive a 10% discount on all clothing. Episode 7, Pam Diamond. I want to start from the start, 1971. Way back then. Is, 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 the, is, the, is there a, uh, a, a date in the calendar that we need to, uh, need to be grateful for, I think? Can you just describe what your what it was like growing up, what your childhood was like? Yeah, so I, w- I was born on the Wirral, Merseyside, so I, I'm technically a plastic scouser, which proper scousers like to remind me of. I was born in a place called Bromborough, which is South Wirral, so it wasn't kind of right in the thick of Birkenhead, which is where I ended up working. Um, so, you know, it was quite a, a, a chilled area. You know, I was quite lucky with my upbringing. Um, both parents obviously worked, not obviously, but both parents worked, an older brother by five years. So it was quite, quite ordinary for what I saw. So the norm back then was as soon as you could, you were allowed, so we were always playing out, which is quite different to today. Always, you know, wanted to be out, being made to come in, called back in, being out as, uh, for as long as you could. So I started hanging around as soon as I could and just loved, found that I loved the kind of buzz of hanging around on the streets and, you know, that it was all, you know, there'd be things going on between different areas and, and then in the early 80s, that was kind of probably early 80s, in the early 80s. Why did you love it? What was it that you loved about, is it just being outside and free or what, I mean, what was it? I think looking back now with adult eyes, it was the excitement and, and like the adrenaline of what we were doing. And sometimes we were probably doing things we shouldn't do. Can you um, give any examples of that? <laughs> Bill old Pam, come can, on, tell us. Can you get arrested? <laughs> um, gosh, there's probably too many more, but we, you know, the, the, sometimes we'd be getting chased by the police. I hope my mum and dad never listened to this. Um, people would were, were drinking, funny old thing. So alcohol was in my kind of peer group from when I was about 12. So, you know, now when I look back at that, that's so young and, and now with my professional head on, it, it kind of has a different meaning. But then it was like we'd buy a bottle of, of cider, a two-litre bottle of cider, and, you know, you'd stay out as late as you could and then you'd get grounded and that was the worst punishment ever to get grounded. It was like being a caged animal. Whereas now you can't get kids out, can you? Uh, I, so- I remember... Uh- partaking in a bottle of 2020 do you remember that <laughs> mad dog 2020 yeah. i think you're younger than me aren't you so I am, when, yeah. I, when i was 
going out in Mars 2020, yeah. Although cider was also a good option because it's like £2 for a two-litre bottle or something like that. Absolutely. And I've I've never met anyone else who remembers this drink, but there used to be a drink called Stock, and it was in like a Cinzano bottle, a martini bottle. It was £2.79, and... You know, we, we'd, we'd wait and see if someone would go in the offie for us. And this stock, apparently, I must Google it now, was all the dregs of all the spirits when they make spirits. Bizarre. I can still smell it and taste it. It was vile. So my, my uh, intro into madness and pushing boundaries was quite early. And, and when I look back, my dad's quite a boundary pusher, so certainly not with substances, but he... You know, he, he did well in, in business when I was growing up and, you know, he had like a speedboat and, you know, it was all quite, quite flash at the time. But that, you know, that's a whole different story. We certainly weren't rich. But when I look at his personality, that pushing all the time to excel and, and loving a bit of madness, I can see where my aspect of that comes in. Did you, do you have any brothers brothers or sisters yeah i've got a one brother who's five years older than me and is he yeah. is he as um free as you are shall we say is he as free as me um in what way did you lead him astray when, no, he, when you were younger we each other we hated oh, really? each other up. yeah yeah we love each other's bits now yeah we used to fight properly fight <laughs> we properly fight like five years is quite a gap isn't it when you're growing up between siblings um, and he he was a massive sportsman, excelled at cricket. He used to play county cricket and football, mad Liverpool fan. Um, and actually was in Hillsborough and was uh, quite damaged. And obviously that's his story, or, you know, I won't go into that, but certainly had a really bad time through Hillsborough. So, yeah, he was, in fact, I've got an Anfield Road sign just behind my computer here. <laughs> Um, so yeah, he was a massive sportsman. And, How old were you when that happened? Uh, 17. 17, yeah. So uh, he was 22. So that, uh, yeah, I can come on to that. But just to, to go back to the kind of my growing up, heroin hit the Wirral really early in the UK. And that was because of the docks in Liverpool. So it was easier to import and, and distribute. So I was very aware of, of heroin in my early teens and it just kind of fascinated me. And there was drugs campaigns and, you know, tele adverts and the you know, panorama would be about the Wirral and drug use. And, and actually one of my cousins was, was in that programme because of his drug use, you know, it was... It was just in my face and, and I guess because I'm intrigued about why people push boundaries, obviously I was intrigued then. I just became more and more interested in it and, and also the criminal system. Do you have any particular stories of your teenage years with regards to heroin, not necessarily specifically about you, but any of your friends or family that was affected by that? Yeah, so... As I say, we all we, I hung around in a gang. It's just what we did up there. It was it, everyone did it. You you know you had a gang of friends, not like a, a gang in terms of bad gangs that we think now. You know it was different. Everyone just had a gang of mates. 
um, and one lad, Christopher Preston, was a really, really good friend, really nice lad. So I grew up, I went through school with him. And then in my later years, when I ended up working in the drug service as a qualified nurse, he was actually a, a patient of the drug service and he died, he died of an overdose. So it, even prior to that, I'd kind of been intrigued by how, how you could have parallels with people and one person would go one way and one person would go the other. So he and I had similar upbringing, you know, similar privileges, choices, yet he ended up a heroin user and I didn't. Why, why do you think you didn't? Because I didn't make those choices. So I think that we're all presented with choices. Some of us are more privileged than others and may not end up in those environments to be presented with them or have the support that if you are presented with them and the resilience to say no. But I was always terrified of, of heroin. Because I mean, it's, it's an sorry, it's an interesting point because you say that you had a like very similar in terms of environment that you both lived in and and you and you played around with and your schooling was very similar so the, a lot of the environmentals were similar albeit family um family relationships which we would be different but yeah you went on two different paths and I, and so do you think how much do you think the an environmental situation affects poor decision making because you've got an example of you going one way and not the other way I think it's a multitude I think you know you've, you've got a genetic potential predisposition you've got personality traits that can lead you a certain way and then and then the environment part absolutely plays something so I was very supported in my background. I was also terrified because I knew that if I ever got in trouble, you know, my my dad was quite authoritarian. So so I had a fear as well. And and I can't really remember why I was so frightened of it, but I, I was just really frightened of it but and, and intrigued at the same time. And I think the problem with a drug like that, you can't mess about with it. You can't. You can't play around and use it. You know, I don't like the term recreational drugs, but you you can't use it in a, like a people see party drugs sometimes. You just don't. It's an absolute, isn't it? You if you do it, that's it. Very rapid. The you know the 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 descent into addiction is rapid. You know, within a few times. So uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the the Pink Floyd song "Comfortably Numb." is written about heroin. So if you listen to the lyrics, they, they describe how, how it makes you feel. So, you know, that that's part of that, that draw into, you know, being sucked in very quickly, both psychologically and physically. So I'd just, like, I'd just like to stay on that, that particular subject about choice because we often hear about um, people maybe making like people we hear about people that might make excuses about an environment they're in 
or there might be blame other people for the reason why they ended up where they've ended up. Mm. And then you hear on the other side of the fence where it's like, no, I had a choice to step out of that. And I just wonder whether there's a, a model to try and combat the wrong path because on one side of it, you see a lot of people that will blame their situation that they're in, maybe an underprivileged background, or it might be a family dynamic. Or, but then in the same vein, other people that have been in that, those situations have, have chosen the right path. I think there's, there's something about trying to instill positivity and hope in people. So, so I, over the years, have worked with people from the most def- desperate and sad backgrounds and situations. But if they've still got some hope and drive and and support, you know, I think one of the things I say often to people is, as human beings, we're not supposed to be on our own. We we don't do well with isolation. You know, we we we're, we're meant we're tribal, aren't we? We're meant to be with with others. So I think sometimes when people fall into these patterns of behaviours. They they have no hope and they have no no backup, no support, no no love. And I don't mean to sound cliched, but you know ultimately we all want to be loved, don't we, at some level, whether it's by our partner, parent, child. So if you've got nobody, I think that that's really tricky. And, you know, that's some of the work I'm actually currently engaged with. So I think you've you've always got a choice, but sometimes those choices are really, really difficult to make if you haven't got a support network around you, even if that's only, and I don't mean to diminish this, it's only a clinician. If you've got one person in the world that you know is by your shoulder when you're going through something, you can do it. But if you don't have that person, then, you know, you can just sink into that introspective world, can't you, where you overthink and what is the point? You know, people do do get in that mode of thinking, don't they? So you've made, you made a choice not to go down that path, which is admirable considering the situation that you would, or the, your environment that you're in. So where, where did you decide to become poacher turn gamekeeper, as it were? Like, where, where did you, where, where was the decision that was made to say, look, what, I'm going to become an addiction specialist now? Was it because of the, of the environment you were in? Did it drive you towards I that? fell into it, Mo. So I, I, don't, I don't see it admirable that I didn't make that choice. I think I was very privileged to be in a position to not have to, make those choices, if that makes sense. Does that do it? Am I making sense there? Because, you know, I, I'm very privileged in many ways. And yes, I could have easily done that, but I, I didn't and I had no, no reason to. And, you know, lots of people grow up with no love and, you know, makes it easier. So, that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel it's admirable. I just, I, I, you know, there's that saying there, there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, could have been me, it wasn't. 
So I, I always knew I'd work with people. So even when I was at school, I was doing placements in like they used to be called special schools, you know, working with children with severe disability. Always knew I'd work with people. Thought I'd be a probation officer because I was always intrigued why people were naughty. Expert got, for experience. Got in trouble. Yeah, I have. By the way, I've never had. I've never been arrested. I've never had a criminal record. The crime's getting caught, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I was just intrigued, and, and I think it's because I saw people getting into trouble, and you'd be like, "Well, why? Why are they doing that? Why are they again choosing a path?" Where did the intrigue come from? What is it about people that that that, that you want to invest your I just time? I love in? people. I love people. I I I inherently fight for the underdog. I've realised I, I I don't I don't like injustice, and I. I, I can't stand somebody being dis- disadvantaged or, or anything to do with it just hurts my heart. Um, so I think that's probably where it started, just intrigue, why them, not me. You know, what? I just, I, I love understanding people or trying to understand people. So I, I did a two-year social care course at college. No idea about nursing at that point started working with adults with learning difficulties and my friend who I worked with he said to me one day I'm going to go and be a psychiatric nurse and I was like what's that and he said to me and it, you know back then it, it was what I classed as true psychiatry so it's true mental health in terms of schizophrenia bipolar disorder you know people really really unwell and you know I was like wow that sounds amazing so I applied for it and then I, there you go, within a short time I was doing my nurse training. So I said that in 1991, which I can't believe I want to say out loud now, 30 years ago. Um, in Chester, loved it. Best three years of my life, probably. Well, one, one of the best parts of my life, it was, it was brilliant. There was a fair share of madness in it, a, a lot of pushing boundaries outside of work. But the, the training was traditional nurse training. So we would do three months on the ward, two weeks in the school of nursing, a bit of leave, and then we'd go back three months. So we had so much hands-on experience, more intrigue about mental health for me. You know, I trained in an old asylum. So, you know, if you think how far mental health has come in 30 years, even in my career, I worked in an old asylum. So the, the hospital I trained in was, uh, well, part of it was built in 1899, 1899, was it? it? You know, so so long ago, and it was a traditional asylum. And some of the patients who I nursed had been incarcerated since the 50s for stealing, for sex out of marriage. So this is in my lifetime of, of work in mental health. Those people were still there. And they were classed as long-stay patients. They were institutionalised. Terribly sad. I can still remember some of their names today and, you know, how they looked. Um, Just really sad, but an unbelievable learning experience. And that's where I started getting into addictions because we had to pick a special placement. 
in our final year and, and there was a, a drug and alcohol inpatient unit in the hospital which you, you don't see anymore so I went there and there that's where it was like ping wow addictions this is my bag I just loved it I've I found it connected with the people I think there was connections again from my growing up with with drugs um the work I enjoyed the work it was really it's really intense work it's you know it's it's so rounded what you have to do with addictions you don't just treat an illness you're looking at the so much more of the person can you describe that in a bit more detail I think if you, if you take so let's say and I am not diminishing any illness when I say this but for example if, if somebody has a depressive episode then absolutely you holistically assess them and you look at you know what what led to this is it more of a chemical thing is it situational or a, and you hopefully treat it and some people may have that one episode but with addictions quite often it's been a long progression to get to the point of seeking help and then having intervention then you know that that's probably years to get to that point so you've got to do a lot of unpicking and then for some people if, if you've started using the substance as a an adolescent so a, a lot of people I encountered they'd start using so they wouldn't go straight into heroin it would be a progression through other drugs and then heroin and perhaps start using late teens. Quite often it would take until their 30s or later to want to address it. So what you've got there is a whole gap, and I still see this with alcohol, a whole gap of learning that's lost, emotional learning. If you think of a, that decade from 20 to 30, we do so much emotional growth and, you know, a 20-year-old is much different than a 30-year-old. But if you've been using a substance throughout that time, regularly and heavily, then basically you suppress any of that growth. And so you pop out the other end with potentially those teenage emotions still and, and none of the emotional rounding, you know, and, and regulation or, and, and maturity. So you've, you've then got to teach somebody how to almost be sometimes. And I suppose that's exacerbated if your addiction starts or substance misuse starts in your teenage years because your teenage years you're, are very formative and delicate in terms of brain capacity to learn your emotional, to learn that foundation for your 20s to 30, 30s. And then potentially you've got some brain changes dependent on the substance, you know, because your brain's not developed and for males, it's a bit later than females. <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's just it's really complex and 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 intriguing and and the the whole reason I chose psychiatry over general nursing was because there's no straight path. You know, if you've got ten people with depression, the pathway won't be the same for each one. Might be similar. Whereas if you've got a broken neck of femur, pathway's probably straightforward. Well, 
I might be I might be talking that down there, but you, you that narrow field of investigation. Yeah, yeah. So so addiction was like another level of that, and it had you know the behaviours, the the family issues, so so you criminal criminal justice side of it was was massive. So I was just like my eyes were like, oh gosh, this is my field. I'm qualified in '94 and worked briefly in a, in a hospital in Liverpool. But then I got the, the job with World Drug Service, which was as a substance misuse worker, nurse, obviously. Um, and I was there, I think I was there five years and progressed through the system there. But that was, at the time, that was the biggest drug service in Europe, which is quite incredible when you think the world's tiny. Yeah. I think at the time the population was just over half a million. Yeah, half a million. Do you have any standout standout cases that you would that you dealt with that could articulate the diversity of what you've just been describing? Yeah, I, I kind of remember one. So the way it worked, you had a caseload. Um, my my caseload varied between depending on what role I had, because it was a, it, there was over 30 staff, which is, is massive way back then. This is the 90s. So we had, you know, like entry points where people would need. So it was, it was methadone prescribing. We were a huge methadone prescriber. So, you know, for anyone listening that might not understand, methadone is a heroin substitute. So designed for somebody to be able to stop using heroin without withdrawing when they take it, you know, like a prescription daily. That often didn't work. So people would use their methadone and use heroin on top. So really a lot of chaos. And I can remember one one guy in particular who lived in a 13th floor of a high rise. So you know classic high rise call him Mike. And he he based he was so I was in the early twenties. He was probably mid thirties, and he'd been using since he was about 13, 14, from a quite deprived area, deprived background. And a lot of the people I dealt with didn't really want to stop. They just wanted to survive, and part of their survival was being able to physically survive by using methadone and not withdrawing and so a lot of chaos, a lot of dealing. And, but Mike and I had a really good relationship and I took him to rehab once and that failed and that was a common cycle. And then he actually, I got attacked a few times. That, that's, that wasn't uncommon. I, I got, he, he tried to attack me once, bless him. Um, because there was a lot of like anger about people wanting scripts for drugs and you know it was just quite a quite a weird time when I look back you know and, and you'd your threshold of what you accepted changed because it was common for people to be kicking off and police coming and getting them removed from the service and you know fights was, we had a needle exchange there was a lot of injectors so Mike one day was trying to get at me through the door, hanging on the door, which was quite scary because I had a really good relationship and quite sad. And he ended up dying. He overdosed. Um, 
but the, the, I think the standout for me was one year. So I, I have huge caseloads to manage. You know, now if you say to someone you're managing a caseload of 75 people, it'd be like, how? How do you do It's It's not, not great numbers. But I had 13 of my patients died that year. So it just kept happening. People kept overdosing, going over and overdosing, and it was like 13. I was just... How did you feel about that? Oh, awful. It's just... Because you, you... Clearly, you build relationships with people. Even though you've got a massive caseload, you, you start to keep on top, and a couple of them were groin injectors. Um, so, you, you know, again, if people don't understand, once people start injecting heroin, quite often their veins collapse easily. So they've got less places to go in. So one of the, the places that people choose is their groin, which is, you know, people will do that in front of me. And, you know, people aren't in, in healthy states. And once once people are at that phase and, and this married couple, they both died. And, you know, it, it just, just real, real sad times. I got locked in a house once. <laughs> Um, threatened let's make her luckily I had my support worker with me and he, he managed to get us out uh, is there a common thread between people that are substance misusing in terms of their backgrounds or their family dynamics because I've got a I've got three children one of them is three years old and you know, he gets loved and adored um, like the other two do. And I ask about the environmental and the choice earlier because for me, as a, a, having a parent's head on, you don't want that to happen for your children. So, but sometimes it's unavoidable. And so to so try and understand for people that might be listening who are parents of young children where they think, oh, it's not a worry bead now, but you want to make sure that they have the best life possible, as I'm sure some of your patients' families did as well, but they didn't, that never happened. Is there, is there any, is there any um, common threads that you can explain or describe? I think education and open talking is really important. So, so my daughter is 19 now, and clearly I've got quite a lot of insight into this area, so it's been a but does she listen to you? Because kids don't listen, do not listen to their parents. They listen to other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So but it's been terrifying for me. So, so the way that I've tried to do it and that whether I've done it well or not, who knows, is make, allow your children to have informed decision making. So talk about things that, that are risks and talk, try and have that open dialogue. Because, I mean, I, I was just told, if you ever dare use drugs, I'll kill you. It was fear. <laughs> just, just fear, threat. Kind of that. Not, not something I think I would recommend now, but open dialogue, education, but also the ability for your children to talk to you about anything. Because if they can't, then that's when, you know, things things can... And sometimes it's difficult to hear your children talking to you about anything. It, you know, it, and you've got to manage your own stuff within that 
you know, I'm very lucky with, with my daughter, my, you know, I think she does talk to me openly, but it can be tough. So I think going back to the, the experiences that I've had and seen, I would suggest that people didn't have that open dialogue, certainly back then as much, but also what we saw, because heroin had been around for so long within the drug service, we saw third generation clients. So you would have the grandparents were in the service being scripted, the parents and then their children. So we have third generation users. So if you think about our own behaviours, if our children see those behaviours, it's far easier for them to see them as norms and start to engage in them themselves. So if you think about alcohol, a lot of people that, that I work with, their parents have drunk heavily or they've been around alcohol frequently. So there is something about modelling as well our own behaviours, you know, if you think about violence and aggression, if you've grown up around a shouty household or violent household, you're more likely to see that as norm. I'm not saying that happens for everyone, of course it doesn't. But, you know, there is something about modelling as well in this. And is there any other causation for addictions or or can it be can it boil down to an individual just being that of that particular nature? I think the genetic piece, so there's evidence now about genetics, you know, if we've got a close family member with a, a dependence issue, it can increase our vulnerability. And that's the word that I use because you mentioned people using excuses before. Just because we have a vulnerability to something doesn't mean we just hold our hands up and go, well, oh, I've got a vulnerability, yes, yeah, not my fault my view and my the way I try and teach people is if you know you have that vulnerability then you work with it you don't just allow it to take you and of course it's not that easy again you know I'll go back to if you haven't got support if you are homeless if you know thinking about the military if you live on board all the time and you, you're very isolated it can be really difficult to 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 fight those vulnerabilities but you know, my, my view is if, if we have the advantage of knowing we have that vulnerability, then we can do something with it. Well, it's like, I know cake's going to make me fat. So should I just keep eating cake and get fat and go, yeah, it's because cake makes me fat. <laughs> no, you do something about it. You know, I, I like to simplify it as far as, as far as we can. Can you describe any situations where you saw the devastation that substance misuse causes families and what advice would you give to families as well um, that might be going through um, that situation being a someone that watches or the, su the support mechanism for an individual there's one one guy I worked with in the drug service who was not your at the time, not our classic type of patient. So he had a job. He was a painter and decorator, quite, quite a good job. Still lived at home with his parents, late 20s he was. And he was scripted methadone, so didn't need to buy heroin. But he kept relapsing massively and then accruing huge debts 
he was from quite what what you would class as a you know a decent background parents really cared for him he'd had a good upbringing good schooling so the environmental factors were positive job blah 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 he was a single lad but he kept messing up they kept bailing him out so every time he messed up they would financially bail him out and what that was doing was was crucifying them he was heavy into his drug phase you know he didn't there's something called the cycle of change he was not at the point of wanting to do something about his behavior but mum and dad kept throwing money you know to stop the dealers basically cutting his fingers off and things like that so that that really sticks in my mind because that's been a thread over the years of what i've seen where if you think about our behaviors we we don't change our behaviours unless the consequences are undesirable to us. So for this guy, yes, he kept messing up and yes, he kept upsetting his mum and dad. But really, that was it. So he didn't have to find hundreds of pounds. He wasn't kicked out. So he was able to maintain that behavior and that lifestyle through them. So there's something called codependency as well, where people who live with people with issues could become codependent and, and they almost need that relationship to continue because they, they get something out of being the kind of helper, if you like, and rescuer. So there, there was some codependency happening. And I, I've actually seen that really recently as well. And, it, and it, I always take it back to that case. So I'm, I'm dealing with a case at the moment. So I won't say too much because it, you know, it is ongoing. But somebody with a huge, huge death through gambling, whose family, and we're talking nearly £100,000 death, and this is a young man, his family have bailed him out every time. So there's been no real need to change. So it's almost that cruel to be kind from a family perspective, which as a parent, yourself and me being a parent, that's really hard to do because the last thing you want to see is your child suffer. However, if anyone listening gets into that position, I would suggest the sooner that you can do that, the sooner you stop cushioning the floor the sooner the person is likely to consider changing. You know, and this is why within my role at the moment, I speak to command a lot to say, this is how you need to treat people with issues because if you don't, they're not going to change. So it's a thread throughout really, throughout families, throughout employment as well. You know, you have to create boundaries for people because often people with addictions have no boundaries. So as soon as you, you rein that in and create boundaries, the more likely that they will adhere to them. Can you, just going back to what you meant, something you mentioned about cycle of change, can you just explain what that is? Yeah, so that's a psychological model that if, if you think about any change behavior, so if you, if you start at the top, pre-contemplation, this is where you're engaging in the behavior and 
you've just got no plans to change. You're quite happy, thanks very much. People around you might not be happy and, and that, that's a common thing again. So quite often I will get calls from friends of somebody, parents of somebody really needs help. Um, you know, they're going to kill themselves through drinking. I've had one this week. What, what can you do? We need to stop this. So it's the people around that are affected and the person in the middle is going, well, thanks very much, I'm fine. They're not fine, clearly. Then that person, hopefully through whatever, will move to the contemplation stage where they're kind of, oh, okay, I might, might have some, some, you know, need to do something about this, whatever it is, alcohol, drugs. So they start contemplating, but quite often they swing back and forward and I'm, I'm fine. And, you know, this, this process can take many, many months, if not years. The next phase that you want, so if I get someone in contemplation, that's brilliant because I can, I can enhance that, you know, that if, if somebody's not really sure, if they're ambivalent, you start to kind of raise the ambivalence, get them to really think about consequences. What you want to move to then is to action. So they start actually doing something about the issue. They start addressing it. You know, if, it, if it's drinking, it, you know, hopefully it's, if it's safe to stop drinking. And you start really working on that action phase. And the next phase is maintenance, which is where you want people to stay. You want them to maintain those changes that they made in the action phase. So that's where you stay, you know, you're really trying to stabilise and keep people there. And that's the ongoing support. Unfortunately, as, as we all know, it's not as straightforward as that. So if you see this as a circle, and this is a psychological model by Francesca and De Clemente. So anyone can look this up. It, it is a circle. So let's say somebody stopped drinking for eight months completely life is going well there's lots of positives but then one day they meet someone uh, an old oppo or an old friend and they go oh mate you know sh should we just go and have, have a pint and they think actually if i haven't had a drink for eight months i'm probably all right now which is really common so they have that one pint and then they you know they get on it for the night when they wake up the next day, they've got two choices. They can either say, what have I done? That really wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't in the plan. I need to get back to where I was before I met my mate. That's a lapse. The other option, so they move back then into to the maintenance phase. The other option is they go, this is a nightmare, I've wasted eight months, I've done the worst thing possible, everyone's gonna hate me, I've spent 200 quid, I'm, I'm, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm just gonna need to go and drink again. And off they go. That's a relapse, and then off we go round the wheel again. So the way that I work with people is say, it's okay, if you lapse, you just need to tell me or tell whoever tell your support network, get it out there, and then get right back on where you were. Too often people are ashamed and frightened and feel like they've let me down or whoever matters to them. 
so then they have a relapse and it's really hard for families and loved ones to understand and you know in in, in our setting in, in the military for commanders to understand because they kind of like what, what's up with them why did they but it, it you know it's a really complex issue so is there any are there any threads between different types of addiction that on a holistic level you can identify addictive personalities before they become issues through misuse or or gambling or whatever it might be to basically it, i suppose it's like a form of self-harm to a coping strategy that that people may use it um is there any you know is there any common commonality between them i think you have to be careful when you start talking about addictive personalities because there's no such thing however what there is i would suggest is probably perfectionist traits that make us push ourselves so you might have addictive type traits of the the behaviors but they're not necessarily in substances so if you look at people that really push themselves and they're perfectionists quite often they're quite anxious and can have a high sense of failure underneath so if that type of person then starts to utilize a substance to to debrief themselves if you like then that's really risky because they're they're probably boundary pushes that's what I've seen over the years people who push boundaries if they then start to use say alcohol they're probably going to push that boundary with alcohol as well so I think, again, it's about education and understanding, trying to understand how we tick. And ultimately, when we drink, because it's so prolific in this country and acceptable and social and, and it's everywhere, we all generally know how we drink. So therefore, it's about recognising that. And if you know that you're a nightmare, when you drink or you don't have that off switch, you know, which which is a part, without getting too technical in the brain, there are findings now about sometimes people don't have what we call that off switch. So if you know that you're not, you don't have the capacity to say, I've had enough now, then you work with that. Mine's usually when my card's rejected. (laughs) <laughs> you've lost all your mates <laughs> yeah and you just want to go home yeah so I, I think quite often people say to me oh yeah I've just got an addictive personality what does that mean you know if, if you look it up in terms of medically it's not there so it, it might be in, in the states I think they probably talk about it a lot more over there but it's about the dependency that we can start having on, on issues like fears, like overworking. If, if you have that capacity, then potentially you might have that capacity in the substance area as well, or eating. You know, a lot of people that I work with find that they, you know, they'll like maybe restrict their eating or overeat or, you know, control is ultimately what's behind this. How did your involvement with the military play out? 
Yeah, so I, I did five years in the drug service, then I went into mental health crisis on the Wirral, which was relatively new crisis teams back then, which again was quite mad. Um, and we dealt with some really risky, risky situations. So we would be the GP's point of contact out of hours for if there was a mental health crisis. So, you know, we would be going, me and one other support worker would be going into situations quite, quite hairy. But back then, it was adrenaline, it was exciting. But then I got pregnant. I was, I was married and got pregnant with Meg. And as soon as I had Meg, it kind of changed things. So... Like I mentioned before, thresholds of what we saw and ex not accepted, but what we were exposed to were really high. So child protection issues, um, you know, just just death, a lot of death and a lot of sadness. And I guess before I had Meg, I, I had some kind of buffer for it. And then I had Meg and I just thought, I remember driving home one night after we used to do 12 and a half hour shifts and it was half nine at night we finished and it was dark it was in the winter and I drove quite a deprived area of the world I drove past the phone box phone boxes back then you didn't see phone boxes maybe now do you people in the red phone boxes um phone boxes then were the were what everyone would use to score from score drugs so that's where they phone boxes were used for that People didn't have mobile phones back then. Um, and there was a girl in the phone box and she had a buggy outside the phone box and there was a, a really young toddler in the buggy and it was freezing and dark. And I was going home to Meg wrapped up in bed and I just it made me feel so sad that, you know, there was this little one and Meg had been tucked up in bed since... You know, hours before so and then got locked in another house by uh yeah that, that was whilst you were pregnant no i'd just come back off maternity leave and then you only had like had four months off maternity leave which now i think god so meg was tiny uh this guy who was really unwell he we went to do an assessment and he locked us in and then said that he wanted to kill a woman and was aiming it at me. <laughs> so we had to make a sharp exit. Um, so all this was like what we were doing, just day to day. And then I thought, I'm not, I don't want to raise her up here. I don't want to, you know, my friend who I worked with, uh, he'd had an incident where his wife had quite a nice car at the time and he'd woke up one night and two guys balaclavas with crowbar in his door screaming at him for the car keys you know and it was just this is like back in 2000 2001 and I'd always had a connection with Cornwall we came here every year on a holiday and then we brought Meg down here for a holiday and I just thought I want to raise her here I don't want I don't want to be up there where they're now. So relocated in 03, started working in the mental health unit in Derriford, 
just while I was looking for a job. And then saw the Ministry of Defence advertising for a, an alcohol nurse specialist for the Southwest. And I read the advert and went, that is my job. I have to have that job. So I did loads of research, no military understanding at all, no knowledge, no background. Did loads of research, uh, lucky enough to get an interview and then lucky enough to get, get given the role. So that was no four. And I was the tri-service alcohol specialist for the Southwest. So based in Drake in Plymouth. I loved it. Found this life of the military, this like bizarre life with a different language. And they'd be talking about going ashore and I'd be like, but we, we are on ground. And, and they'd be talking about um, having a wet and I'd be like, Oh, I'll go for a swamp. And, <laughs> and so I was tri service as well. So it, it took me a good six months to understand the military. Four different languages there. Yeah. I was more interested in uh, certain aspects. So, you know, in the Southwest, there's mainly Navy and, and Marines. So I someone bought me a copy of Jacksby when I got the job. So I was like, this is Matt's. So it took me six months to understand just, just the, this world, but I loved it, absolutely loved it, loved the, um, the boundaries, loved that it was straight and to the point, and it just keyed into something in me. I got it. And then I started building the role and doing a lot of work with commands because I kept saying, you know, that people were in the... In, trouble all the time and developing issues threshold was a lot lower than what I was used to obviously because we were we were more occupational mental health to keep people at work and then I started developing like briefings to the command to, to say you know this if you start to do this maybe this won't happen at the other end it kind of made sense to me so that gathered a lot of speed but for them them they they don't know and I use a saying, you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. And interestingly, that's no that's not very different in other parts of other parts of life either with management. You don't know what you don't know. And if you can't don't know how to change a status quo, you're never gonna get a different result. And I think sometimes there can be an arrogance that if you're in a certain role, then of course you know it, and of course it's the right way. So to come in as a female CV was quite interesting and I had to work really really hard to be accepted and listened to but in a way as a female civilian I had a I had a bit more flex because I wasn't being drafted every two years to a different base different well I wasn't just in that job because I was a chief or a left-hand commander I was I was picked for that role so I was quite bold I think at times and then I heard of these beings called the Royal Marines but they never came near so I was in the DCMH so for anyone that doesn't understand the departments of community mental health which the military have have many of around the country and although we were heavily populated geographically by Marines we didn't really see them 
So it really, again, I'm intrigued. I want to understand. So it started like trickling. So it was kind of post-Telic and very early. Telic being, it was the, yeah, Iraq, yeah. And then um, Afghanistan started kicking off. So we had a slow trickle, but again, I would be seeing these real alcohol issues and people at the point of almost being discharged from, from the Marines. But I had no in. So again, I was a little bit bold and, and I was very fortunate to be invited by one of the RSMs at the time to do an educational brief. And explain what an, RS, what an RSM is. They're regimental sergeant major, so they are the senior NCO within, within that unit. So very respected, you know, it take, takes a, a long time to get to be an RSM. You have to go through a board, you know, they are God, really. <laughs> and, you know, they, they are in charge in many ways of the unit, obviously, along with the commanding officer and other commanders. And this certain RSM, then he brought into my message. So where, whatever unit he was at, he would invite me. And then I started to get a role in like a, a suite of these briefs really for, for the lads, for the commands and whatever was happening, I would keep adjusting it. So I think one of the things I found in the military, things could sometimes stay static. So, you know, let's do a brief on this. Okay, we've written that brief, yeah. Yeah, there's the brief you need to deliver, and the brief's then four years old and hasn't changed. You know, that that was my what I saw at the time. So I kept and still do this, keep changing depending on the environment, the atmospherics, what's happening, what what the issues. And fortunately, I started to understand the Marines far more, and I think that's an issue people may not understand themselves that it's a very closed, unique environment, the Royal Marines. And again, female civilian, quite difficult to be accepted. And it took years and years. Um, and then along in parallel to this, obviously I had a caseload of people and I would be dealing with more Marines and I did my trauma training. So I did my EMDR training, eye movement, desensitization, re, re processing so I would be dealing with marines who'd served in theatres of war and had real significant issues alongside alcohol so I feel extremely privileged to have done all those trauma interventions because I've got a real understanding of, of Afghanistan and certain tools in particular, because I would deal with multiple lads from the same tools and still do. So, I, and again, I just loved the kinds of ethos in the core and that real drive and let's just get this done and passion, you know, it just brought into a lot of me really. So uh, I stayed in the DCMH for um, 13 years and then I felt I'd kind of outgrown and needed to 
I could have easily just stayed there and sat pretty for a long time, you know, just to retirement. But I, I get thirsty really for knowledge and growth. So I decided to leave, which was really strange. It was actually a, like a grief process. I, because I actually loved the job, I, I felt I needed to go. So I, I, I grieved once I left. So I, I secured a job. I, was a, I managed a liaison psychiatry team in Derryford Hospital, which is the general hospital in Plymouth. Sorry, interestingly, you mentioned about grief. I don't think that's too dissimilar to people that leave service on a normal or voluntary or or um, told otherwise. I think that is a from from that particular cohort that is something that happens, but we don't necessarily label it as that. Yeah, which, which I think is a shame, isn't it? Because it, I can vividly remember. So I, I, you know, I cried when I left, which you know I'm I'm, I'm outwardly emotional anyway. I don't don't mind people knowing if, if I'm sad or I'm happy or I'm feeling a bit mad or whatever. Um, or assertive. I, I, <laughs> I'd be having dreams. I would have dreams, like lost dreams about, you know, just really strange, really sad. Um, but I went to this job in the NHS. It was a brilliant job. It was a really hard job. So liaison psychiatry for people that don't know it's basically mental health in the general hospital. So if you have an overdose and attend A&E, you will likely be seen by a liaison psychiatry nurse or member of staff. So I managed a team and had to develop this team into a 24-hour service. It was like, well, the day after I started, my line manager said to me, hi, Pam, you've... Um, inherited a, uh, a feral team <laughs> that wasn't told at interview so yeah it was quite a tough job however I, I loved it it took a lot out of me it was you know extremely long days most of the week because it was such a big job but I, but I absolutely committed to it and all the time I kept in touch with certain people because, you know, a lot of my friends are, are Royal Marines. And one in particular was the Brigade RSM at the time. So, uh, again, a very senior RSM over some of the units. And he, uh, he's a friend and he rang me up one day and he just said, Pam, we want you to come back. We... Uh, feel that there's a gap since you left that hasn't been filled and the Royal Marines charity want to create a post so for me that was like winning the lottery and still is uh, there's a but because I found it really difficult to I absolutely knew I would come back but I felt extremely disloyal to the team and the service that I'd just managed to build up, um, you know, without blowing my own trumpet. It, we were doing really well and, and it, it come through really tough times, this team, and we'd really got somewhere. Services had improved, patient experience was better, and I felt like I was jumping shit. 
but I, I, I had to take it because it was my dream job and it still is. So I, I came to the Royal Marines Charity in 2019 and basically picked up a little bit where I left off because it was just, my, my role is just with Royal Marines, but whereas before it was just the Southwest, it's now national. My role with the serving Marines is, is education as opposed to treatment because DCMH still treat. But the, the big add-on is now Royal Marine veterans and their families. So I can now support them as well. So the, through the Royal Marines charity, that's been a, a, a huge development. So there's no other military cat badge charity that has a role like mine. So, you know, the, the growth has been huge in the charity over the last couple of years, you know, merger with the RMA and there's lots of transitional support now and the veterans referral plan where we can you know, offer therapy there's so much growth now yeah it's been yeah. amazing it's been amazing seeing the transformation that's happened in the support and services and now now because the we were very reactionary I think in the past and now it's moving into being proactive and trying to put things in place in prevention as opposed to detection. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been night and day really on how far and quickly as well that mm. the, the support and mechanisms and, and organizations have come in such a short space of time. And that's no, through no small part that you play, you know, you, you, I know personally people that you've literally saved their lives and you can't, you can never underestimate that, which is the reason why they were desperate to get you back because they wanted, they knew the effect that you had and the experience that you've got and the expertise. And that's what they wanted to influence. Um, the more, more guys, I'd like to change tax slightly now, if I may. So can you describe what happened last summer? Yeah, <laughs> don't think you're talking COVID either, are you? <laughs> I'm not, no, because that started last February, unfortunately. Yeah, I think if I go back to then, just briefly, so my role, brilliant, cutting around the units, Scotland, doing briefs, four, three, four, five commandos, and then COVID hit. So the charity were forced to work from home. And you know, like like everyone, that was really challenging. Fortunately, our IT infrastructure had been upgraded, so we were we were really lucky to be able to to utilise what, what we have. And I started supporting beneficiaries from home. Really tough. I I found that um, really challenging because the majority of my my beneficiaries, the patients that, that were struggling most were the younger veterans who were living on their own, which I found just desperately sad and, and needed a lot of support. So I, I really I feel I worked really hard through the first lockdown. And for my own sanity, I really looked after myself. So I started doing lots more fears you know it was spring it was great training outside um you know 
training is important to me anyway, but I, you know, I started doing charity challenges to, to add a spin and raise money. So really looked after myself to be able to look after others better. And then um, I got a letter for a mammogram. So I'm not old enough for normal national screening. Yes, nearly am. <laughs> um, you don't look it, by the way. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, oh, this is good. It, it's um, a local, in, in the southwest, they're doing research for breast, early breast cancer. Go along. So I go along. Lock, it was just when lockdown was lifting in, in June. So it was middle of June. Go along on Saturday morning, mammogram, fine. Working uh, a few days later, got a letter. You, you need to come back for some additional tests. And I can vividly remember opening it and going, oh, oh that's a bit weird. So I went back for, for extra tests, these special biopsies, and just thought, oh, well, uh, uh, someone else I know who's a similar age had had breast cancer and needed a lumpectomy, and, you know, it was fine. So I thought, oh, God, I might need a lumpectomy. Okay, another appointment, you need to come in and see. And, and because I'm a nurse and because I've worked in that hospital, I kind of know some of the language that you might not know unless you've been in that environment. So I wasn't told who I was going to see. But I thought, if I ask who I'm going to see, I kind of know the severity then. So when I asked who I was going to see, they said, oh, so-and-so. And if you, if you don't know about medical stuff, surgeons are always known as either Mr, Miss, Mrs or Ms. They're, they're not called doctor. It's a funny funny thing in surgery it goes back it's a, a traditional thing you're going to see Mr so-and-so I thought oh, I've seen the surgeon so uh, on the 1st of July I go the surgeon's off sick <laughs> so I had to wait for ages and uh, my husband was with me and uh, it was everyone was wearing masks then so, you know, it, it, everyone was, we were in, well, everyone still is wearing masks, but I had a mask on, this doctor had a mask on, the nurse. And the doctor came in and she, she said, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. Um, you, you need chemotherapy, you need surgery, and you, you need to start this, now, so all you can see is eyes. <laughs> and I just thought, what? And she said, so you need chemotherapy and you have, uh, a, I don't even know if she said you have a tumour. She said, she did not say at any point you have breast cancer, which I've flagged up since with one of the breast nurses, because I think you need to hear it. So I, this, this appointment was like probably 20 minutes long. So myself and my husband walked out just in silence. He's a former Royal Marine. So you know, he, he is very resilient. So we walked out in silence and just got in the car and didn't just didn't speak. 
And then we were driving home, and for anyone that knows Devon, we were on the A38. And the next thing is this dog loose on the A38, a spring spaniel, and I'm a mad animal lover. So I'm like, oh, there's a dog loose. So the next thing we're stopping, holding the traffic up, and he's wrestling this dog to the floor, trying to hold up two lanes of traffic. I'm thinking, this is like some kind of mad dark comedy here. Is this really happening? And then we got home and we took our dogs out. And, and I, I don't think I absorbed, I'd absorbed it then. And so then I need to tell my parents they live five minutes away. And I think that was the first time I said it when we went to see my mum and dad. And, you know, I was in tears and I just thought I've got breast cancer. And yeah, so that, that was the first of July. Then I had to tell my daughter, which was horrendous. How did it feel? How did you feel when you said it for the first time? Uh, like quite surreal because I went from thinking, oh, this is a bit weird. There might be something to, oh, sorry, back in the appointment, I said, do I need a mastectomy? And she said, yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so it, it was just a bit bonkers. And then within days, I was in for a biopsy. And very fortunately, the cancer hadn't spread because of what I've now found out, I've got an aggressive cancer um, that was feeding off my estrogen. So I'm still, I'm not menopausal, so I've still produced estrogen so the cancer was loving it. And that's why it's a, an aggressive cancer. So then I started my chemotherapy, you know, it's just appointments here, there and everywhere. And before you know it, and, and I still haven't met my oncologist face to face. That's something through COVID that's been really difficult for cancer patients. You know, it, it's been, a lot of it's been alone or phone calls. You know, I couldn't take anyone to chemo. I had to go to most appointments on my own, you know, you know, everyone masked off, which, you know, of course I appreciate, but that makes it more difficult when you're crying your eyes out and the nurse has got to stay two metres away from you and wants to give you a hug. Yeah, that's been been tough. I suppose, it, that, you know, that comes back to a point you made near the start of this conversation about connection, that you need connection and even more so in, in dire times as well. Uh, absolutely. Because... I think, so it's ironic really, being a nurse myself, how little I knew about cancer. And every cancer is different. Everyone's treatment path is different. So if someone's having chemo, it's not the same. You know, you have very specific drugs for your cancer. You have very specific doses. I was on a really high dose and it, it well, nearly killed me, <laughs> literally. Because uh, if people don't, no, chemo is basically a poison. So it poisons your body and, and kills the cancer, but it also kills all your good cells. And the reason you lose your hair, the reason you can lose your nails, the reason your skin goes terrible, your mouth is awful and you sore, is it affects the rapid growing cells first. So all of those areas in your body grow rapidly. So I, I've... I know you can see me at the moment, but nobody else can. My 
hair. I've kept, I have long hair before. I've kept about, about 40% of my hair. And that's because I was fortunate enough to use a cold cap, which makes you look like an astronaut. But basically it's an, like an ice pack that you have on your head for the, and it's, it's plugged into the electrics to keep it at minus four throughout your chemo. I've heard it's quite a pleasant experience as well. Yeah, it is. It's um, it's like constant ice cream head, ice cream freeze. So um, for those listeners, I'm joking, by the way. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's just like another thing, but it's horrible, and some people rip it off because it's so it freezes your head and and it puts the follicles to sleep. So I. I managed to keep like probably forty percent. It's grown back now, but that's really distressing when you start losing your hair. You know, you you for anyone that's heard people with cancer talk about it, it literally comes out in clumps. And I can vividly remember a day when that was happening, and just not only do you feel horrendous, you're I think the, the best word I can use to describe my last seven months is terror, just terror, waking up in the night, feeling frantic. And you're also affected by all the drugs, you know, you, and, and one of the worst things that people can do is talk about someone else who had cancer who is doing really well. And Or what one person said to me was, and this is just before I started treatment. Oh yeah, I know someone. They had, they had, yeah, they had that that cancer like that, and uh, but then it came back. And you're like, really? And another thing I have asked people not to do is ask what the prognosis is, because when you've got cancer, you are, I speak for myself, terrified. You know, especially when you've got children and you don't know what's going to happen. So it's someone to basically say to you, do you know when you're going to die? Because that's what they're asking. Is so unhelpful. And, and apart from anything, cancer services don't give you a prognosis now. They give you percentage chances of living, which I haven't had yet. And I don't know if I want them, actually. Um... So until you are five years clear, you're classed as still having cancer in a way. So I still, so sorry, back to the chemo, I had four rounds of chemo. I was supposed to have six, it had to be stopped because I was so unwell and they kind of thought it wasn't working, which was terrifying. Um, what's chemo like? Just horrendous horrendous apart from the physical stuff you can't think you can't get your words um you're just a tip for anyone that ever knows someone with cancer do not buy them flowers if they're having chemotherapy because your sense of smell is better than a bloodhound so smell triggers sickness so i would be getting flowers and i'd have to just give them away or put them away from me. One of the worst days, I could smell all the wood furniture in the house. 
and it was just making me sick. I had to cover up the wooden furniture. Um, the smell of a tea bag made me throw up. It and and you f you feel feel like you're dying, I suppose. But all the time you hope that it's killing the cancer, so you're stuck in this. But I think one of the most difficult things for me, but one of the biggest learning experiences, was going from being fit, well, doing charity challenges, fitness wise. You know, really, life was good. To then have that rug pulled. But what it's made me think a lot about is the patients I've dealt with with trauma, because it's similar. They've been living the dream, and then suddenly a major life changing experience. And I have never put enough kind of emphasis on that part of, of that loss and adjustment. I think sometimes we miss that adjustment. So we treat what maybe the trauma symptoms are. So I actually meet the criteria for PCSD now because it was such a shock and life threatening. And it, Do you think you've got PTSD? Uh, I've certainly got adjustment issues, certainly. And, and where am I in my treatment pathway? Um, so I had the chemotherapy without boring people, lots of issues along the way, blood transfusions, infections, and they had to stop the chemo because it was so unwell. And then I had a mastectomy, but I had to fight for having reconstruction at the same time because of COVID. So what they, my, my operation nearly got canceled and what they had to do was book me in as a day case to do a full mastectomy and reconstruction, which is just not what you do. But if they hadn't done me as a day case, I wouldn't have had my surgery, which again is terrifying because that would have mean the cancer was still there. They thought the chemo wasn't working. So that was a really difficult time. That was the end of October. But then I had the operation and that, that was absolutely a massive step forward. Recovery has been quite tricky. I've got some other issues around nerve damage that's ongoing. Still having um, one of the chemo drugs. How um, have you managed to cope throughout the last seven months? I've been really lucky in the support I've had. So I think the the Royal Marines and the Royal Marine Veteran Network, because I, I decided from the beginning to be really open about it for two things. One, because I couldn't bear the thought of people making their own minds up about why I'd kind of gone a bit quiet. But I still carried on work until I had my me. Worked through chemo, which when I look back, I'm like, that's a bit mad. <laughs> um, but the charity were amazing. You know, I had a lot of flex when I worked and when I didn't work. So I, you know, hugely appreciate that. You know, they, they really looked after me. So I decided to be really open because I just wanted to get it out there. And I think that worked. And I've used social media in that way because I thought I can't bear people wanting to know and not know and make their own mind up. I may as well just get it out there. And I wanted to do it a bit to say to people, 
if you get a screening invite or if you don't check yourself, male or female, you need to do it because this is terrifying. You know, you don't need to go through this if you if, if you go for screening. If I hadn't have gone for that screening, if I didn't live here, um, who knows? But I think we know we wouldn't be here at some point. Do you think about death a lot? And um, no, I obviously I'm curious, and I, I I kind of believe the cards are dealt. So the cards are dealt, and you you can either do your best with those cards, which is what I'm trying to do, or you can give up and not do all the right things. You know, so I've. One of the other commitments I made to myself was to move every day through treatment. So that I carried on running. I've got a treadmill at home. Um, carried on with weights up till surgery. And the bike, what bike? Uh, but then obviously after surgery, that changed. And I had to have 12 weeks where I couldn't touch a weight. And a certain doc who's known very well to the Royal Marines said to me, you shouldn't be lifting anything heavier than a tin of beans. <laughs> um, but I, I made promises. And, and I think a lot of what I tried to do was for the people I know. So the people I've worked with that have dug out blind for me in terms of treatment when I've asked them to. For the Corps, the Royal Marines, who've been amazing you know that support has been incredible the charity my family i guess it comes back to what i said at the beginning though that if you've got love and support it makes things easier and obviously i'm quite driven and i'm quite positive um but yeah there's been times where of course i, I dread and real fear so what I must say is after my operation it came back that treatments have been really successful so that's brilliant that's best outcome they call it complete pathological response which I've had which is great so where they thought the chemo wasn't working it actually was the issue is uh, I am still at risk so you know, I'm, I'm going to be having more surgery at some point. I'm on medication. I'm having issues with the medication. It's not straightforward. And I think one, if I'd have lost all my hair and looked like the stereotypical cancer patient, I think people might have understood it a bit more. But I think because I'm really keen to still project looking okay and, and trying my best. Sometimes people, and, and this comes into mental health, I think we, we make huge assumptions just because of the way someone looks. Because I'm in bed sometimes still, you know, and I'm happy to say that because I think it's important. So I'm back. Why do you project that? What, what's the reasons for that? Um, because it's important to me. It makes me feel better for a start. It makes me feel like me. Because I guess we all have a bit of a, a suit of armour, don't we, when we're doing when we're in our roles. And it it's I have those standards of myself that I want to keep. 
I'm, I'm, at, I'm so glad I didn't lose all my hair and that's a vanity issue. But I think working with largely a male environment, that would have been really, really tricky. And you know what the sense of humour is like in the Marines. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a funny thing. Sometimes I'm still I'm working at home. It's all video calls and people go, oh, you look great. And I think, okay, I might look great. I don't think I look great, but actually this is still really tough. Really tough, you know, I'm still having loads of appointments and uncertainty and, you know, it, there's a thing about when you've got cancer that when treatment either stops or ramps down, that can be the really tricky time because when you have been treatment, people are all over you in a certain way, you know, even though fortunately I was at home so I didn't have to face people I'd be getting sent things all the time and, and you know people were, were amazing but I think when once your chemo finishes and your surgery finishes people go oh you're all right now right crack on off we go but you're not you know there's a there's a long recovery journey I hate that word journey but it is it's a pathway and I wouldn't change it the only thing I would change is what my family have had to endure. You know, my my husband, my daughter, and you know, I'm, just I'm about, a parent. I was just about to ask you about that. What effects have you seen um, on your I, family? I, I can't even imagine, and I don't want to for now. You know, it's because I, I'm glad it was me, because because then it sounds a bit weird, that doesn't it? Because then. I want to take it, but then to watch, I would not say I would rather it was them because I couldn't bear watching someone go through it. And I think, you know, for my parents, Meg, my daughter, who's been a bit back and forward from uni, you know, it's you know, her and I are extremely close. My husband, Neil, fortunately, he's quite straightforward and we're a bit yin and yang. <laughs> um, so he's been very steady, but I, I can't imagine. And that has, in fact, I was thinking about this last night. I was thinking it is something I will ask, particularly my mom at some point, because well, I can't imagine it as a parent myself, you know. Um, I know I look a lot better than I did now, so I think that's probably helpful for people around me. Do you ever get a sense of, this might sound like a bit of a strange question, and it's not, not, only because of experience from another individual that I, I've spoken to, one of my friends years ago. Do you ever get a sense of guilt about it happening to you and it affecting your family? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, so, so when I say I wouldn't change it, I wouldn't change it because I think, well, what's the point in wishing it didn't happen? Because it has happened. It, it was my cards. There we go. I've, I've been very, very lucky in so many ways to get the mammogram, to get treatment through COVID, to have the response, to get my reconstruction. I've got a new boob. <laughs> Hugely lucky. But yeah, guilt for putting them through it because it, it when you're helpless, I've been able to do, I've, I've been able to, to do this. Does that make sense? You know, do treatment, engage in treatment, do, be a good patient, which 
for a nurse is really difficult. Um, we're a nightmare nurses and medical professionals around the world, I'm sure, are nightmares to treat because we're curious. I'm, I'm curious about everything. Um, but yeah, to see them go through it and everyone's willing you to survive, that's, that's uh, what you feel, that everyone's just desperate for you to survive and tell you to be strong and you can do it. And sometimes I, I remember having a video call with a close friend, Joran, and I just got really upset. And pe people struggle with that, I think, when when you're upset because they just will everyone's willing you on like cheering you <laughs> when sometimes you can't be cheered you know you just need to go with it and uh, he sent me a, a card afterwards and it said you were given this life because you're strong enough to live it and I loved that, that so when I was struggling that was mid chemo I just kept thinking about it and thinking I can do it you know and and yeah, it's just day to day, back at work now, which is great. Just, I'm, I'm hugely aware though now of adjustment for people when, when the life has been just cracking on as it does for us. And then something, a major issue changes it, that rug getting pulled is the way I see it. And it's something that I've not given enough attention to before so that's something I want to be more aware of now in my own practice. You mentioned about the support that people were giving you and maybe not necessarily in the although good intention but not necessarily delivered in a the most sensitive way how would you like how what advice would you give people provide people being in the situation of of the person that receives to try and reach out to help because we've had the conversation before where I never reached out to you because I thought, Oh, everyone would do it. And you're like, well, that's not quite right. You know? And so whilst good intentioned, it wasn't necessarily the right, well, not necessarily the right decision, but you, you, you get my point. I think it's, it, it, it's a, you know, that saying that you find out who your friends are, that what I did find out was a, only a couple of people that I would have expected to, to have been there weren't and that's okay that's fine people have their own reasons and that's okay but people that I never expected reached out and I think because I've got and I don't want to sound big-headed but because I've got a profile in the core because I'm the only female doing that job that that's it you know it, it's it's that's the reason you're yeah. one of one if there were, if there were, yeah, if there were hundred of me, it'd be different. Uh, I think lots of people thought like you thought that. Oh yeah, Pamela have loads of people, but lots of people were saying that. Oh, I didn't want to bother you, Pam, because I'm sure you've got loads of people. And I, actually, I didn't, and that's okay. You know, cause that that's okay. And everyone's got their own stuff going on. I was very. That's the way I thought about things. That everyone. It's not just about me. Okay, I've got breast cancer and it was quite shocking, I think, for a lot of people because of what I'm like. Um, does that make sense, what I've just said? Yeah. Because I've been shocked when other people have been diagnosed with, with serious illnesses 
you know, and you think, oh, wow, they were all over it, you know. I think it also comes back to a situation as well where quintessential British people do not want to necessarily pry as well. And so they, you sort of either admire from afar or you suffer from afar or you empathize from afar, but actually being involved is probably not because people don't want to, but more just because the way it is, is like keep yourself to yourself. That's, that's their business and there'll be people there in their inner circle that can help with that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've used social media quite a lot and, and used that almost as a filter to, to allow people to know. And it's been really helpful, you know. I know social media can be poisonous and toxic and vile, but I've been really lucky and I've, I've had so much support from, from people I've never met, you know. And not that I was using it for that, but I was, I was almost using it as a bit of a, this is where I'm at, you don't need to worry or you, you don't need to ask. Maybe that's why people also wouldn't reach out. But, I, you know, I, I've got no, no drama at all with what people did or didn't do, because, as I say, who am I to, to judge why somebody that I might have thought would be different? You know, I've had far more positive surprises, if that makes sense, you know, and, and just people expressing support and love and... You know, keep saying about love a lot, but that's what I felt, you know. And I think what I'd like to just mention, be nothing to do with my cancer, but my work and suicide. So one of the things that struck me last year is I, I think that people who take their own life don't know how loved they are. You know, so I think if you, if you use Caroline Flack as an example, and it's almost the anniversary of, of her death, if she'd have known how loved she was, that outpouring afterwards was quite spectacular, then I, I wonder if the result would have been the same. And I think the same for our people that, that we work with and serving and and veteran and you know civilian if if people maybe we don't tell people enough how special they are and how valued they are because certainly the suicides that I've known and you know over my time I've had quite a lot I would suggest they didn't know but then afterwards everyone talks about so and so don't they and says how brilliant they were and if only we'd known. And I, I do think there's something in that, that maybe we should tell people what we value in them. Maybe not that we love them, because clearly we don't love everyone. No, but I, I think that's a really good point, is about investing just a bit more time into, into others, and not to be consumed by distractions. And actually, we're here to connect with each other, which brings brings us back to the start. Pam, I'm... I'm absolutely delighted that you could take the time to speak to me today. You're one of the most incredible people that I know and your mental resilience is seriously big. It's unbelievable how you are able to do what you do and do what you've done for the benefit of a lot of my friends and colleagues and to continue to do that now when you're now you're back at work with what you've personally gone through is a testament to you um and there's and that's the reason why the royal marines wanted you back 
because you're an incredible person and you and you do incredible things. So thank you so much. And I wish you all the best fortune in the uh, near and distant future. Thank you, May. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. You're doing great things.